to Media Roots Radio. Today we have a special interview with journalists and filmmakers Max Blumenthal and Dan Cohen. Abby will be joining me in a bit for the interview. But first I just wanted to open this episode by talking a little bit about their documentary film Killing Gaza and also what is happening in Gaza right now. It is the Great March of Return happening in in Gaza right now. And apparently there's going to be tens of thousands of new protesters approaching the border very soon. Uh, We recorded this episode a couple of days ago, so some of the information is slightly out of date. Unfortunately, it appears that it's about to get much worse very soon. So... I thought they would be two of the best people to speak to on this issue. And also their film, Killing Gaza, is an extremely important document of just what life is like in the Gaza Strip. And not only just what it's like in general in the Gaza Strip, but what it was like after and during the 51-day war um, that Israel waged in Gaza in 2014. I mean, it was essentially a massacre. Um, It wasn't really a war at all. Very shortly, we will be transitioning into our interview with uh, Max Blumenthal and Dan Cohen, and joined by Abby Martin. The reason I wanted to interview you guys today, not just because of the excellent film Killing Gaza that you put together, but because of the great march of return happening right now in Gaza, it was a planned and as far as I understand, and you guys please correct me on any of this, um, it was a planned sit-in protest that was designed to go until May 15th, uh, which is over a month from now, the time we're recording this, the 70th anniversary of Nakba, or catastrophe, uh, the day when Palestinians were forced to flee their homes and land. Since yesterday, April 2nd, and I believe the number is now at 17, is that correct? 17 protesters 18. have died? 18 now. 18, yep. And over, apparently over 1,500 have been wounded by gunfire. Just give me a, an overview of what is happening right now. Um, is this, when, like, when is the last time something this awful has happened? Um, and what, give me more detail on exactly what this is and why IDF forces are essentially firing live ammunition at protesters, unarmed protesters. Let's start with Max. Well, I, I think it's important if you're listening to this right now to not just look at the incident as uh, an isolated event. It was definitely a historic massacre that I think belongs in history books alongside the Sharpsville massacre in South Africa, the massacre of Turkish and international activists on the Mavi Marmara Free Gaza Flotilla in 2010, um, and many other massacres, maybe even the Sabra and Shatila massacre in 1982. Um, but th- we have to understand why 
the protest was taking place and why Israel responded so harshly. And to do so, we have to understand what the Gaza Strip is. And it really does go back to the Nakba, as you mentioned, Ravi. It goes back to 1948, uh, 1947 and 48, when over 400 Palestinian villages were destroyed systematically by Zionist militias and then the Israeli army. Uh, 750,000 people or so were driven from their land and homes, turned into refugees in order to found the Jewish state of Israel, an exclusively Jewish state um, whose existence as such is predicated on the maintenance of a Jewish majority. That means, you know, in historic Palestine, where most people are Arab and non-Jewish, you have to keep them out. And so one of the most convenient places to warehouse people was the Gaza Strip. Over 300,000 people went south towards Gaza in 1948. It was then controlled by Egypt. And in the early 50s, they began to um, mobilize as Fedayeen, resistance fighters, under the watch of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. And Israel instituted a policy uh, under Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion of shooting them, anyone who crosses that Gaza border, which was then just kind of covered with a little bit of barbed wire, to keep them out. Israel also passed laws like the Prevention of Infiltration Act, I think it was passed in 1953, and it defined all Palestinians who had been turned to refugees as infiltrators, which meant that if they were caught inside what was then Israel, they would be arrested, usually brutally arrested by border police, and then they'd be tr- you know, taken on trucks and dumped in Gaza. In other cases, um, outside of the town of Ashkelon, what's now Ashkelon, which is in southern Israel, it's really close to Gaza. Sometimes it gets hit by rockets from Gaza. Um, At the time, it was known as Ashkelon in Arabic. And its population was put in a concentration camp after 1948 and was held in barbed wire. Um, An Iraqi Jew who was put in the town to replace the Palestinian population, Naim Giladi, wrote a book called Ben-Gurion's Crimes, and he talked about sneaking through the barbed wire into the concentration camp to speak Arabic with the Palestinians. And that's when he developed this deep, abiding hatred for Zionism, when he realized what was going on. And then he watched them um, loaded into trucks, and they were taken into Gaza and dumped there. And so the population, I mean, Dan and I have met the grandchildren of those people in Gaza who say, oh, look at those lights up there, up to the north in um, Eshkol, that's where my family's from. So the Gaza Strip is a warehouse, and people are being warehoused there to maintain Israel's ethnic purity. And of course, we know that they're being treated horribly. Now they're getting like some something like four to six hours of electricity a day. The economy is in shambles because of the siege. So Uh, Much of the population is food insecure. They can't buy the food that might be available. Uh, Israel controls the skies. They control everything outside the sea. They put, you know, they they shoot fishing boats that go too far offshore, um, and they maintain a concrete wall around the Gaza Strip. Um, Some people would have called the Gaza Strip a concentration camp. Uh, Calling it an open-air prison is pretty fair. Um, So 30,000 people, basically Gaza's civil society, grassroots of Gaza decided to march towards that concrete wall, march into the teeth of the Israeli army that maintains these, uh, what you could call ethnic borders, and to declare their right of return, which is guaranteed to them, by the way, by the UN's Resolution 194. Um, So the march was really about resisting being warehoused forever. It was like a prison break. 
And the reason that Israel reacted so harshly is not only this perceived fear of security threats or terror, but a threat that's much greater to Israel, uh, which is the demographic threat, that this population could come back and join up with other Palestinians and have families and outpopulate the Jewish population. So I think it's actually much what we, the massacre we witnessed has much, much darker undertones when you look at how the state of Israel is structured. That's all very important context. And I, I think most of our listeners probably don't know many of those details that you just laid out. But one of the, I mean, one of the interesting things that's happening now that I've noticed is that it appears that there's something has shifted in the public consciousness and maybe that's optimistic on my part to say, but, and Dan, I, I want you to speak on this. According to international law, using live ammunition on unarmed protesters is illegal. And, you know, Israel, as Max pointed out, has, has been doing massacres similar to this on and off for the last several decades. And obviously, on some level, Israel's been able to get away with this, and their flagrant behavior makes it seem like they think they can get away with this and continue to. So why in your mind is Israel still able to get away with such flagrant violations of international law? And do you think that maybe that is also slightly changing now in terms of just the way the world perceives them? Well, I think the U.S. Um, and Europe, the EU, have essentially provided Israel with total impunity in its crimes against Palestinians or um, also against African refugees, um, you know, which which fled from Sudan and Eritrea and are currently um, in in the south of Tel Aviv and, and Netanyahu is planning to deport. But I mean, you saw prior to the march the other day, um, a top, Gadi Eisenkot, the head of the Israeli military, the chief of staff saying, I've authorized 100 snipers to open fire on these marchers. And so there's no even attempt to hide what the plan is. It's openly advertised. And that's the kind of culture of impunity that the you know, so-called international community has cultivated with Israel, where they can just openly advertise that they're going to commit a massacre. And to anybody who's paid attention to what's happening and what's happened in Gaza, um, it was completely obvious that um, a lot of Palestinians are going to die. I mean, I've been to these protests. I documented them. Um, you, can, you can see them in our documentary, Killing Gaza, what they look like, where it's just you know, hundreds and in this case thousands of mostly young men and sometimes young women and girls too, um, who are simply going to protest and they talk about, they chant millions of martyrs, we're going to Jerusalem, and they simply want to be able to cross the, the invisible line to be able to go back home to the, you know, villages that um, they were expelled from in 1948 and again in 1967, and that's just simply too much for Israel, um, and so it, it just uses deadly force. And the U, I mean, the U.S. blocked the, a U.N. resolution um, demanding an investigation, and it really just shows the um, oversized influence that Israel has in the U.S. and then in turn at the U.N. And so while Israel will, you know, decry the U.N. as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, the reality is um, you know, Israel gets basically a, a pass on these kinds of crimes and 
you know, the most the most we saw is that um, you know from the U.S. is during the Obama administration. At one point, Obama um, declined to veto a resolution, um, you know, condemning Israeli settlement expansion, and that's you know the that's the most severe condemnation you'll you'll get uh, even from Obama, who at the same time was the greatest enabler of Israeli massacres. Um, in U.S. history, and so you know now we have the Trump administration, which has kind of abandoned any semblance of neutrality um, or even-handedness in you know Israel and, and Palestine, and um, has just openly embraced Netanyahu and Jared Kushner as uh, the ones you know basically dictating what's going to happen. And Jared Kushner, obviously, you know, is so tight with Netanyahu. He has an apartment uh, bedroom in, in New York for him to stay when he comes. I mean, it's just outrageous. Dan, you brought up that that quote from the IDF. It said, yesterday we saw 30,000 people. We arrived prepared with precise reinforcements. Nothing was carried out uncontrolled. Everything was accurate and measured. And we know where every bullet landed. This is amazing because this is, again, the IDF just admitting that not only, you know, were, were, did they mean to kill all these people, um, they, they were, it was a premeditated thing where this was planned out. Max, um, just talk about how insane this is. I mean, to actually admit this on a tweet, I mean, it just seems so brazen. Um, but then again, I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen Israel do this. You mentioned the flotilla um, just talk more about what this tweet actually means. Well, you know, the, the tweet was sort of uh, supposed to be for the consumption of the outside world and Israel's relationship to the outside world and its dissemination of what Israelis call Hasbara or like exp explainer talking points or what we would just bluntly call propaganda is totally different than the kind of uh, discussion and public discourse that we see internally in Hebrew media and Israeli society. And I think the two kind of came together there with uh, <laughs> s someone, you know, within the Israeli army kind of taking credit for shooting uh, people, include even people in the back as they were running away. I mean, there was also, you know, an overconfidence. They said, you know, we know where every bullet landed. Uh, we, we were so measured, we're the most moral army. There's also that kind of mentality. And, you know, you could see a higher up coming in and saying, do you realize that we shot a guy in the back on video? You know, a lot of people are dead and we shouldn't be taking credit for it. Like this, this actually has implications in international law. And this tweet could be potentially used in a case against us if the ICC ever decides to put white people on trial. Um, <laughs> you know, which they, they haven't done since Milosevic. Um, and I've, I've been saying all week, you know, if Palestinians want to get justice, they should force Netanyahu to change his name to Vladimir Putin or Bashar al-Assad. Right. But anyway, you know, they deleted the tweet. But then, you know, if you look at what um, Israelis said to Israelis, um, Israel National News, Arutz Sheva, which is a right-wing out, news outlet based in the in a settlement in the West Bank um, that's very close actually to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who is himself a settler. I call him, you know, reciprocal U.S.-Israeli ambassador, David Friedman. <laughs> and it's also close to the education minister, who's an extreme right-winger, Naftali Bennett. Um, they wrote, um, you know, Palestinians are staging this protest so they can you know, pile up dead bodies before the international media. And for once, let's give them what they're asking for. 
Wow. Um, you know, people were, there's, there's a serious amount of bloodlust there. Avigdor Lieberman, the defense minister, um, said our troops deserve a commendation for the way they reacted to this. Um, and it's not just um, 18 people dead. I mean, we're talking about close to 800 who were wounded by live fire. Um, many of the, some of the bullets that it, the Israeli forces fired appear to be dum-dum bullets, which um, expand inside the body of the target. And, you know, so you see these grisly photos of legs blown open. Um, the policy is, you know, shoot to cripple. Um, but in many cases, and Dan has actually been at one of these um, protests and filmed um, people being shot and killed and can talk more about what it's like actually being there. Um, and w the protest he filmed uh, will appears in our documentary, Killing Gaza. Um, but, you know, you're talking about head wounds, people just getting, you know, being rushed into ambulances with their brains pouring out of their head and nothing happens. I mean, this has been happening week after week after week in Gaza. And finally, we're seeing some international interest in it. Right. Well, I mean, Dan, were you surprised? I mean, at the first day of, of these stage protests, it was supposed to go on for a long time, like my brother was saying. I mean, were you surprised to see uh, the aggression that quickly, so soon, just such brutality, um, just unabated like that, and also talk about being at these protests and what they're like? I mean, you know, realistically, honestly, I was not surprised at all. I was, yeah. I just knew it would be an absolute bloodbath because I know how trigger happy these Israelis, these Israeli soldiers are. And then, you know, I saw two, three days ahead of time, the Israelis saying, uh, chief of staff saying I've authorized a hundred snipers. Um, and so, I mean, I was, you know, wondering like, is there going to be like 50 dead or a hundred dead or something like that? Um, hundred, but I mean, you know, just want to jump in really quick, a hundred snipers with permission yeah. to fire on the demonstration. Yeah. 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 A hundred snipers. They even brought, they even brought in soldiers in training to, you know, to take part in this. My God. You know, Gaza is like the laboratory for, uh, for Israel to, you know, test its weapons and train its soldiers and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, going to these protests really helped me understand what drives uh, these, you know, mostly young men to um, basically, you know, they know that they're going to get shot and they know that there, there's a good chance, at least a few of them are going to die. And so, you know, I think for those of us um, outside of, of Gaza, it's kind of in a way perplexing, like why would these guys go there if they know they're just going to get shot? I mean, what, what purpose does it serve? And I think if you look at, um, you know, the experiences that they've had, well, I'll, I'll say this, at one of these protests I went to, I went to the hospital afterwards to see these young guys who had been shot, you know, shot in the stomach, shot in the leg, the ones who survived. And I asked them, why do you guys go to these protests, especially why do you go out to the very front where you know you're going to get shot? And what they would always say is, we're, we're one hand, we're united. And, you know, what they, and so they're just, for them it's about unity, but, and that's what they'll tell you, but what they won't tell you about um, is their life of living under subjugation and occupation. And these are the guys who, these are young people who have no future, whose future has been robbed by Israel, whose homes were destroyed and they picked their loved ones, you know, they dug their loved ones' bodies from the rubble of Shaja'iyah, who uh, don't have clean water to drink, who don't have any hope in life. And so 
all they can do is go and sacrifice their ability to walk and perhaps their life in order to deliver a message to the outside world that they're not just going to die quietly. It's the only way for them to have some agency in life. And, I mean, in my opinion, that's to be commended. And, you know, it's the job of journalists in the outside world to hear that message and deliver it and take it to the streets. And so it's really, I mean, it's, it was absolutely terrifying for me going to these protests, but I would kind of stand, you know, just far enough back that I felt like maybe I was a little bit safe. <laughs> I could, like, delude myself. But, it, but, you know, I'm just basically watching through my telephoto lens. I'm zoomed up watching these Israeli snipers looking through uh, their, their, um, their snipe, you know, or, or their... their uh, sniper rifles look like just picking off one protester after the next like it's a turkey shoot. I mean, depending on where you are, if you go to like Nahalaz, the Nahalaz crossing where the protests, most of the protests took place, it's just an open field. It's just like a, it's like a empty, it's, they grow like wheat there. And it's just an empty field where like these soldiers are just basically laying there, you know, drinking Gatorade or whatever. Well, they just like open fire, hit one after the other. And, the, and these protesters are like sitting ducks. I mean, there's just there's nowhere for them to hide. Um, and it, they're just completely defenseless. And then if you go uh, at the Eras crossing in the north, um, if you go to the protest there, which I've been to, the Israeli soldiers shoot from a raised platform. So they're about 15 or 20 meters off the ground. And then the protesters are trapped between the cage that you use, that foreigners, you know, and a few Palestinians who are able to get out, use to enter and exit Gaza on one side, and then a big field, a tr kind of treacherous field, um, with a remote control machine gun overlooking it on the other side. And so there's literally My nowhere God. for them to like escape to. Um, and these soldiers just pick them off one after the other. But these, but these guys just go back and, you know, they're so committed to delivering their message. Um, and you know, it's, it's just one of the most challenging things I think for people on the outside to understand because, we have no real frame of reference to understand their experience, but when you look at their, you know, these guys who just never known uh, a day of freedom, a day uh, of dignity in their life, then it starts to make sense. Right. I mean, you put humans in cages, and you know, you're surprised at what happens. And and thank you so much for talking about that and relaying the message from actual people living in Gaza, because again. You know, I we have this ethnocentrist lens when we look at Palestine, when we look at Gaza, and it's just really important to hear specifically what these people are thinking and saying themselves, which is something that we literally do not hear in Western media. So thank you, Dan, for, for that. And Dan, as you were saying that, I, I couldn't help but remember that incident, I believe it was in 2009, um, where a Reuters cameraman... I believe he wasn't just a cameraman, he was a journalist um, who was filming um, some Israeli tanks in the distance, and one of the Israeli tanks shot him with a shell when it was clearly marked that he was a journalist. So um, people don't realize the bravery that it takes to go you know, do journalism in some of these areas where Israeli military is just willing to kill a journalist um, simply for reporting on what's going on there. I can, uh, I can relate a, a little story about that. Um, on the final night of the 2014 war on Gaza, um, 
this is when Israel decided it's going to, you know, basically send a message after the ceasefire, the terms of the ceasefire were already agreed to and it was imminent. Israel decided we're going to take out the biggest towers in Gaza simply to send a message. And I, I, you know, had no idea this stuff was going to happen. And I'm sitting there in um, um, the Sharuk Tower where the Al Jazeera office was. And I was just uh, spending, you know, drinking some coffee with some friends, some journalistic colleagues. And then these towers start coming down. And um, I mean, this was definitely the most terrifying, terrifying night of my life. We had the, all of the windows open. Um, because of the the blasts could shatter the windows and you'd have you know shards of glass flying through the air and so the the destruction of the Italian compound which was about a kilometer away filled the sky with smoke and ash where I had my shirt over my face and I just you know you can't breathe it all comes in the building finally it starts to clear out a little bit and then another another tower gets hit the Basha tower which is even closer about a half a kilometer away and I'm just in utter terror and I'm just you know like I'm glad I'm inside I you know I cannot imagine being I don't know. I was just, I was just completely terrified. And uh, finally, the sun comes up and the bombing stops. And I'm, and uh, I, I slept for like ten minutes. And I wake up, and like twenty-five Palestinian journalists pour in from the streets who had been out all night documenting this. And it just kind of showed me that there's how many there's so many uh, Palestinian journalists who go out and document their everyday reality and, and film the most horrifying things and there's you know this journalistic infrastructure in Gaza that just Western media totally ignores I mean you had like at that time you know Jake Tapper uh, was in Hebron um, in the West Bank like t uh, taking f videos on his phone of uh, kids making bread you know I mean it's just like it, it was just so shocking to me that that's crazy that you brought up the Al Sharok journalist tower because that's where and and again the you know the the erasure of of Gazan journalists of course Israel goes to the museum in D.C. and and you know retroactively removes the names of actual Palestinian journalists who have died in the line of combat in Gaza and then on top of that this is the same tower that housed all the journalists including RT that um, IDF soldiers just you know bombed. Um, and a, a journalist from France 24's leg was blown off, and they just said, yeah, we knew there were journalists in the building. Of course we did. All journalists are Hamas targets when you're in right, Gaza. Right. So it's just, right. it's just nuts. The uh, Israeli army spokesperson who made that declaration, Avital Leibovitch. Avital Leibovitch. Uh, yeah, she went on to work for the American Jewish Committee, um, which is like this imperial Jewish uh, establishment group that's really right-wing. And they actually did an event at the museum that oh, uh, disgusting. that Rania and I Rania Kalik and I crashed and we interrupted the event because it was so disgusting what Leibovitch was doing she was trying to present uh, Israel's case against the you know Hollywood propaganda that they face in Gaza and she actually showed grainy black and white footage filmed by a drone of a family running into a house and then a missile hits the house. The entire family had been killed, and in, in, in what actually happened was the family was told to evacuate, and then they rushed back in when they thought it was safe, and the missile killed them. And she said, this is a terror family, a terror, this is a, a Hamas terror family. She said, the, she literally said terror family at the museum 
in front of this crowd. I've never been so, and the, you know, the whole family was exterminated in 2014. And so she's justifying exterminating a family because they'll tell all family. I've never been so fucking furious just to see that right. in the museum, you know, where young people At least she didn't on, draw the cartoons of the family, like under, you know. Well, it would have been better if it was missiles. cartoons. I'm watching right. actual people, including children, right. get blown up. And it's being justified in the museum where kids get taken on field trips that come into D.C. from Kansas. And I just stood up and started, uh, you know, screaming, this is like absolutely disgusting. It's justifying state terror. And I started, you know, yelling at the museum uh, administrators Basically, they'd taken a, a ton of, a, you know, a big chunk of change from the American Jewish Committee in order to do this event, and they were pretty embarrassed at the, um, embarrassed and a little bit shocked at the content themselves. I mean, you could see the fear on their it face. It was a fucking snuff film. It was a literal snuff film. It was like Faces of Death. Um, but that's Horrific. that's really, I mean, how sick, Jesus. how sick the Israeli military is, and how sick our institutions are. Um, that really play ball with them so and they think that that's like convincing that's what's even more yeah yeah it's like look obviously like we had <laughs> those are terror family those are terror kids terror babies hey terror terror babies terror. i was gonna say you know israel's pioneering post-birth abortions um you know they're terror fetuses i mean how how sick can you get max you mentioned um the idf policy of shooting to cripple before we've been talking an awful lot about how the IDF has no problem just killing unarmed protesters in cold blood, murdering them. Um, but in terms of that policy, shoot to cripple, um, go into that a little bit. And also this this idea that IDF soldiers also have this, and I'm, and I'm not entirely sure if it's official policy, but I've read that it is, that they actually will target um, Palestinians' groin areas with live ammunition and do you see more? Do you see that as sort of in line with the shoot to cripple policy, or is that something more, um, uh, not just humiliating, but also sort of designed to render Palestinians sterile, uh, so they'll no longer be able to have children? Uh, I would just take off the table any, you know, idea of like a sterilization policy by, um, you know, targeting the groin, and I don't really see any evidence of. It. Any Israeli uh, intention to, you know, lower the Palestinian birth rate artificially, uh, you know, they, they do it by setting borders and through demographic engineering, uh, you know, separation wall would be one example. But, you know, there, there, isn't, there is a clear increase in the application of the shoot to cripple policy. I was just in the village of Nabi Saleh. Uh, I know Abby's been there. Dan spent a lot of time there. This is where the Tamimi family's from. Every, many people have heard of the case of Ahed Tamimi, um, the 17-year-old woman who was jailed for slapping a soldier. And you know her family has been basically f uh, at the forefront of a campaign in a small village of unarmed resistance and protests against settle like a settlement expansion. And they. The Israeli army has used live bullets against them over the years, um, and but mainly they would come and use tear gas, rubber bullets, mass arrests, night raids, and it didn't stop them from doing their f protest every Friday. So they brought in the shoot to cripple policy, and you know I was just there and I was asking Basim Tamimi, who's a protest leader and the father of Ahed, you know why are you guys no longer doing the Friday protests? 
And he said, because on Friday, you know, all the young men would come out and Israel just started shooting them in the legs. And we were only a village of 600 people. And after a few weeks, we had like 35 guys with gunshot wounds to their legs. Uh, you know, these are the guys who do the work. Um, this is, you know, they're the heart of our society. Um, so we suspended those and they basically do these spontaneous daily protests. And it's mostly the younger kids uh, who are able to go out and confront the soldiers with stones. So this, the shoot to cripple policy is, uh, I think, uh, you know, Dan can speak to it in greater detail, but I think, you know, it was really put on display first at this giant protest at the Kalandia checkpoint in 2014. Um, and it's been used extensively on the Gaza border ever since then, where they've been having Friday protests. And we saw, you know, the most, I think the international media was forced to pay attention to how grisly uh, and atrocious it was with the great march of return. But there's a logic behind it. And the logic is to basically demoralize the frontline protesters who are the guys in their late teens and 20s who are strongest and most able to mobilize. Um, and then basically to wear down the rest of society by crippling them. Right. Um, I wanted to briefly, Dan, for you to talk about that Kalandia checkpoint protest back in 2014, because I, I met a woman named Aya who um, got shot in the groin also. Um, she was throwing a rock. She said that someone in front of her was simply holding a flag and he got shot directly in the heart and died. But she told me she was not, she didn't want to go to the hospital because she didn't want to be in the registry. She was scared that they would come and, you know, find her later. So she basically still has the bullet lodged in her pelvis. But talk about the, what happened in 2014 when they opened fire again on unarmed protesters then. And also just, I wanted to talk really quickly about Human Rights Watch because... <laughs> I know that this isn't like abnormal for Ken Roth to be such a piece of shit, but it's just insane to me that the leader of like a hu like a human rights organization can come out there and be like, yeah, totally. Like, well, if you shouldn't have gone to the border, you know, like this is this is uh, known that if you go to the border, you're going to get shot. Like he basically was just justifying and using the same idea of talking points to rationalize the fact that all these people got massacred because they simply walked too close to the border. Dan? Yeah, that Ken Roth tweet was remarkable for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, because he's giving Israel pretext to uh, shoot refugees uh, again. Um, and and all, that, all that has to, they have to do is, is cross the border this time. I mean, the, the irony to me is that, well, I, I mean, I've, I've been to a number of these protests on the Gaza border. I've been to them where they don't cross the border, and I've been to them where they do cross the border, where they you know, actually cut the barbed wire and get across. Um, and on the day that they got across, actually, there were less people shot that day. So Israel doesn't even use that necessarily as a pretext to say, oh, now we have to start shooting people. Israel shoots people. It's uh, 300 meters into what they call the buffer zone, uh, 300 meters from the border, from the fence, um, into Gaza, which is all agricultural land. That is, and it's very loosely, liberally interpreted 300 meters. That's where Israel will shoot people. If they cross the border, they might be arrested. They could still be shot, but it's not as if that is, you know, the defining action, crossing the border um, that, you know, leads Israeli soldiers to shooting them, as we saw, considering they just, you know, killed 
uh, 18 people, who, and none of whom crossed the border. Um, so Ken Roth is not only just a total fanatic, but he has no idea what he's talking about. Um, and it, it really, you know, sheds light on, on the direction of Human Rights Watch and, and what it is um, that it's, sadly, it's just a kind of a tool of the empire of Western imperialism. And, uh, you know, it shows how the term human rights can be so easily exploited because um, it just simply has no class analysis. Um, and it's, it's you know, uh, any any human rights abuser has to go, no matter you know whatever, no matter what what the like context, what the reality is. Um, yeah, there's no, but, they, and mean, they don't they don't accept the legitimacy of armed resistance uh, or any form of resistance unless it comes from a group whose interests dovetail with Western foreign policy imperatives like Syrian jihadists. I mean, that's Ken Roth in a nutshell. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, in terms of the 2014 protest, it was, it was basically Ramallah, um, you know, which kind of exists in this bubble, um, you know, because it's essentially like the neoliberal fake capital of the West Bank, where this uh, artificial Palestinian economy that's just kept alive by EU and US dollars exists. Well, on the outskirts of Ramallah is a Palestinian refugee camp called the Al-Amari. And basically the refugees of Al-Amari camp um, marched to, and, and as well as the neighboring areas, marched to the Kalandia checkpoint, which is the main checkpoint that divides um, the West Bank from Jerusalem. And uh, about, I want to say about 10,000 10, people marched on the checkpoint and Israel just opened fire. And I, I was pretty close to the front lines, but I mean, I didn't want to get too close, especially because I didn't have a flak jacket or any kind of protection. But it was just one after the other, and they shot about 200 people that night. And nobody batted an eye. There was no condemnation from the Obama administration, no anything. And it's, um, I went to the hospital, and the, the hospital was just overflowing with, you know, bereaved terrified families and friends wondering if their, you know, if their sons had uh, survived or if, or if they'd be killed. And, and you know, to shoot to cripple is basically, it's a it's standard operating procedure um, that, you know, any, any day of the week, anyone who wanders into the buffer zone um, in Gaza or near, the, you know, near any of the system of walls in the West Bank will just simply be shot, um, at least in the knee or the leg. And, um, you know, if, if orders allow it, then, uh, um, then in the head or the chest to kill. So it just kind of, you know, depends maybe on the mood of the commander or, uh, you know, what's, what's coming from the top. This is probably a, not going to sound like a valid question, but I'll, I'm going to ask it anyways. <laughs> do, do you think the tide is turning societally against Israeli apartheid. Are there any... That's a signs? very valid question. I mean, are there any signs that's happening? Because I see, you know, slightly more mainstream people. Like, I don't know where Zogby's, James Zogby's been this whole time, but he seems like he's very anti-Zionist right now. I caught something on Fox News where Geraldo Rivera, of all people, um, for about one minute straight, Fox News led him be extremely sympathetic to the Palestinian plight and even criticize Israel. And it appeared that the panel was instructed over earpieces to distract Geraldo into a ego, <laughs> ego petting <laughs> career retrospective. Um, 
And also, <laughs> and also, Sarah Silverman, uh, Sarah Silverman, who we know has been pretty prominent celebrity Zionist, along with her sisters, um, has actually come out recently in support of Ahed Tamimi. So, what does this all mean? Is this is this anything new? Is there is there sort of a shift happening here, Max? Well, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the shift that Dan and I went through is what so many younger Jews are going through right now uh, against this backdrop. And I've just noticed, I mean, just it's a general feeling I get that the narrative that I put forward or the analysis and portrait of Israeli society I put forward in uh, my book, Goliath, which came out in 2013 and was heavily attacked by liberal Zionists, uh, put forward by liberal Zionists, uh, has been you know, widely kind of accepted and vindicated, and no one's going to deny anymore that Israel is swung fully to the right, and it just keeps, it's going further and further to the right until it veers off a cliff. Um, like David Rothkoff, uh, who is you know, the head, of, he, he runs a foreign policy magazine. I mean, he was a Clinton advisor in the State Department, a pro-Israel partisan all of his life. He wrote a piece in uh, Haaretz calling Israel thugocracy, I love how these, like you know, these these foreign policy kind of guys always come up with like kleptocracy and Trumptopia. Trumptopia, yeah. And it, <laughs> none of it ever really applies to the U.S. Um, but anyway, you know, he called a he called the country that he supported his whole life uh, a government of thugs, and you know that that's significant. But also the polling of younger Jews, um, any younger Jew who identifies as a progressive Democrat is generally not going to support Israel. The numbers are getting lower and lower. Bernie Sanders, in order to hold on to his base, has had to at least issue kind of milk toast criticism of Israel, and he's really the only senator who will do so. Um, I noticed, and it was really interesting, Kirsten Gillibrand who's in New York. She's the junior senator in New York under Chuck Schumer, who is like this industrial grade anti-Palestinian racist who said that uh, Palestinians in Gaza deserve to be under siege because they don't read Torah. Um, Kristen Gillibrand voted against uh, the anti-BDS act put forward by Maryland Senator Ben Cardin, who's one of the biggest tools of the Israel lobby. Um, and Gillibrand had previously been ultra pro-Israel. So she's reading the tea leaves as well, because she's going to run for president. Um, who's another, I mean, they're, they're, Elizabeth Warren is also, for the first time, kind of, she criticized the Anti-BDS Act as a violation of free speech. Um, it's not a criticism of Israel, but for her, she realizes she has to put up some resistance. And then, you know, the growth of groups like Jewish Voice for Peace in this country um, is enormous. Uh, they're actually kind of forming their own lobbying complex within Washington for the first time. And then uh, you look across the West with the rise of groups like Judas um, in London, which is a group of left-wing anti-Zionist Jews um, who I've known. I went on actually a trip with them to um, Jewish sites in Spain. We call it the birth wrong trip. And they're now in the news. They're in the New York Times. They're in every British paper because they had Passover with Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, who's being called an anti-Semite by the right-wing Jewish establishment. And now he's being attacked again for having dinner with the wrong Jews. But the reality is these are the right Jews. Um, this is the future of um, 
Judaism in the West in many ways, and it doesn't point towards unwavering support for Israel. It is a beautiful thing seeing the tide change. Dan, you have embedded yourself, both of you have, but but Dan, you and um, a reporter named David Sheen, uh, Israeli-based reporter, have kind of embedded yourselves in these mass rallies uh, for Elor Zarya, the, the um, IDF soldier who executed the wounded Palestinian man and got basically a little more than a slap on the wrist. There's soldiers of just masses of people supporting him in the streets. I mean, talk about the presence of the left wing within Israeli society and you know, this whole Netanyahu corruption scandal, it, it's great that he's, you know, he could possibly be indicted for corruption. But on the other hand, you know, he, he kind of reflects the true state of, of Israeli society. I mean, can you speak more on that, Dan? Well, I think that the episode of Elor Azaria illustrated um, kind of the pathology of Israeli society and how far gone it is um, extremely well. I mean, this is a soldier that executed an unarmed a wounded Palestinian man who was incapacitated, lying on the ground, and he got an order from the top um, to just go and put a bullet in the guy's brain and finish the job. And so that's what he did, and it was caught on video by a local Palestinian man who filmed it, gave it to B'Tselem, the premier Israeli human rights organization, and they uploaded it to YouTube, and the video went viral. And this is at a time where there were, there were many, many summary executions in Hebron, um, in you know, this is kind of the most severe apartheid in the West Bank that you can see. And these were happening all the time. It just happened to be that this one was recorded in crystal clear video. And so, you know, we couldn't really, the West couldn't really turn a blind eye to it anymore. And so Israeli society um, basically rallied around the, kid, the guy and said, this is, this is everyone's son. And it really said so much that um, you know, Israel is not about like defending itself. It's about executing unarmed, uh, wounded people on the street who pose zero threat. Um, and I, I went and documented the rallies in support of him with with uh, our colleague David Sheen, the Canadian-Israeli journalist. And it was absolutely horrifying. First, we went to Ramle, where where Elor Zarya is from, and it's you know said to be a mixed Jewish-Arab town where there's um, where there's a coexistence, but of course this is one of the, the cities that was ethnically cleansed um, of the majority of its Palestinians in 1948, um, and the remaining Palestinians have kind of lived under siege there from this encroaching population ever since, and um, Elor Azaria and his family were extremely racist. His mother had written on Facebook about uh, how Gaza needs to be wiped out, made genocidal statements, her, her and her father, and so I go to this rally in Ramla, and everybody is sad for little Elor Azaria, the murderer, the executioner, um, and they're all rallying around him. The mayor of, of um, Ramla, who was uh, actually from the kind of center-left Kadima party, was like, this is our boy, and we're going to get him out. Um, so the Israeli society from left to right totally rallied around him. Um, I went to a, a much bigger rally in um, Tel Aviv, in, which, in, in Tel Aviv's Rabin Square, um, which is, you know, it's like the, it, it was filled up, and it's kind of the equivalent to filling up Times Square in New York City. All these people rallying around an executioner, and you had um, Israeli officials, you had, um, it was like a cultural event, it was like a big celebration of murder um, 
and including uh, music, religious figures, secular figures. And is Rabin, and it was like is a, Rabin Square named after Yitzhak Rabin? Yes. So that's this is exactly exactly this is where Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1994 um, or 19, 1995. I want to say um, by a far right wing Israeli. Many of you know who these people who came out to uh, many many of these people who came out would have supported um, basically the person who assassinated him. Um, and, and it, I mean, it was just the most bizarre thing ever. It was, it was a total celebration. There was a rapper on stage talking about, uh, how, you know, every, every terrorist needs a bullet to the head. And then Fuck. basically they incited, uh, this whole crowd where, I mean, it was really terrifying if I, you know, if I'm identified as a leftist, um, then, you know, there's a good chance you just be, you, you'd be beaten. And that's actually what happened to David. As soon as we arrived, David likes to dress like a, a little bit different to kind of assert that he's not one of these like fascists. He wasn't Israelis. wearing an Israeli flag around his neck like a cape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was wearing like a slightly different hat. And he was actually nervous about it on the way there. And I said, yeah, you probably shouldn't have worn it, but you'll be all right. And we went and he got separated from me for a minute. And before I know it, he's the police actually, uh, uh, he started getting attacked and the police... Um, instead of defending him, just before the mob totally beat him to a pulp, the undercover police pulled him out of the mo- pulled him out of the crowd and said, uh, "Leave or be arrested now." And so he decided to leave. And I was able to stay and, and document this, but um, you know, you you really saw that there is just no opposition. There's no real opposition to Israel in terms of where it's going. And um, you know, our, our few people like David Sheen, our few really leftist friends who really question Zionism and, and are anti-Zionist, they're living totally under siege if they stay in Israel. Um, they're, you know, it's difficult to find any work. You're, you're just, you're kind of like a freak of society. And most of the anti-Zionists, um, and, and even those who are not necessarily anti-Zionist, they just don't like the incredibly tense nature of Israeli society, they leave. They go to Berlin they go to Europe, they go to New York City, they get out as fast as they can. And, uh, and so it really shows that, you know, sadly, there's no hope from within Israeli society. And that's, you know, why it underscores the importance of BDS and campaigns from the outside to, to um, end Israel's, you know, freakish apartheid system. Yeah, some of the some of the footage from the Israelis are nuts. I mean, they're chanting death to the leftists. You said that it wasn't caught on camera, but they were chanting death to the videographer because human oh, yeah, rights organization Bet Salem, go for it. Yeah, that was in um in in Ramle. I was it was after after the after the uh public the city hall like public hearing in support of of El Rosaria. I'm outside filming this stuff and my camera malfunctioned. But at one point, they start chanting death to the leftists. And this is not like an angry mob of like, you know, just hooligan types. It was like soccer mom types chanting this. I mean, of, of all colors, there's like an Ethiopian mom and an Ashkenazi mom. And they're chanting death to the journalists. I mean, if that's not fascism, I, I just don't know what else to call it. And it's it was, you know, just terrifying and extreme. And uh, I just, you know, didn't know like what world I was in witnessing that. So I wanted to end the interview by talking about uh, Killing Gaza, um, the excellent documentary film that you guys have both put together about the 51-day war in Gaza, 
Um, and most of the footage is taken in the aftermath of this war and just, uh, you know, endless um, amounts of rubble. Um, some of the, the footage that you guys took um, looks like the moon. I mean, it's it's incredibly disturbing how much destruction happened in Gaza. Um, but there was a specific incident in the middle of the film um, with a Palestinian named Salim uh, Shamali who was making his way through the rubble um, from the bombings and he appears to be randomly shot multiple times and eventually killed by an Israeli or IDF sniper um, while actual human rights workers, I don't know if they were UN workers or from another human rights organization, were just sitting there watching, unable to do anything, and they were essentially telling people to get get away um, because they knew an Israeli sniper was just, you know, killing basically in cold blood in the area. Um Give me a little bit of backstory about this incident, Max, and if there were if there were or any consequences for the IDF in that incident, or if it's just was just another incident that happened during that period that was never investigated, or you know there wasn't any international outcry about. We know about Salem Shamali, the young nineteen-year-old man who was killed on camera by an Israeli sniper on July fourteenth, twenty fourteen because he was filmed. Uh, it was filmed on a camera phone uh, by actually someone we know. Um, and a friend of ours had escorted Salem Shamali into the rubble to look for um, his cousin. His cousin was wounded. He was in a house. Israeli, uh, the neighborhood was still honeycombed with Israeli snipers. And uh, in our documentary, Killing Gaza, our friend Joe Katrin, who spent, I think, two or three years living in the Gaza Strip, uh, narrates the scene for us. And basically, he said that a group of volunteers from the International Solidarity Movement uh, went with this guy they just met on the road, Salem Shamali, to help him get his cousin. Um, Salem wandered deeper into the rubble than they wanted to go. He was wearing a green shirt. Uh, but in civilian clothes, and an Israeli sniper shot him in the leg. He, you know, you can see him on camera. It was seen all over the world. Uh, he was shot again in his chest, and then a final time, the sniper just straight up executed him. Uh, we don't even know who the sniper was. This was a kind of shoot to kill policy that Israel and Israeli soldiers were afforded inside the Gaza Strip. Um, that's beyond dispute. Um, it's something that you know we established through our work in Gaza by interviewing people that this happened again and again and again. And we went from house to destroyed house in that neighborhood in eastern Gaza, Shujaia, and met people whose families had been executed. I mean, like lined up against the walls and executed, executed with their hands bound. Um, just it, it was just happening everywhere. Um, to those who had, were unable to flee. So, you know, this wasn't exceptional, um, and it needs to be looked at not in isolation. We had the chance to meet Salem's family. Um, again, not exceptional, but this family was absolutely destroyed by this incident. Um, they were unable to retrieve his body, and by the time they got it, the body had been moved because of Israeli bombing. Basically, Israel, Israel had been bombing his corpse because it was bombing the area so much. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole story is just incredibly grisly. Um, we met at the home of Salam Shamali, where they were staying, a young, his younger brother, Wasim, who 
offers really harrowing testimony um, and you know breaks down in tears on camera and Dan actually managed to go back to Gaza and follow up with Wasim and see his progress in life um, as justice was denied. Um, justice was denied to this kid and so he decided that there was a way that he would go out and pursue justice on his own and I guess Dan can talk about that. Well I mean this is a pattern that I saw not only with um, Salem Shemali's little brother Wasim um, but a number of times in Gaza where um, boys you know who should be in a, in a normal setting should be you know playing soccer on the street or, or in school their lives are destroyed and their siblings their parents are murdered and so they simply want uh, some form of vengeance for their family's deaths and so Wasim told me um, one, you know, one year after his brother was killed, I went and saw him, and he told me that he was going to join the Qassam Brigades, the armed wing of Hamas, um, so he could get revenge for his brother, uh, for his big brother. And the, and I saw that also with the Backer Boys, who you know is one of the most infamous uh, killings in the 51-day war. The, the eight boys who were playing on the beach, and Israel bombed them and four, four died and four survived. And all four of those boys all said they want to be fighters. And so Israel is kind of, you know, raising, through its violence, it's, it's creating an army of maimed children who all want vengeance for their siblings. Um, and I mean, that's just the incredibly dark reality that exists in Gaza and in lieu of justice can completely understand why those boys are the way they are. And so, you know, when one of those boys pops out of a tunnel and mows down some Israeli soldiers in a couple of years or whenever it is, we can't say we didn't know why that was going to happen. And all of the in international condemnation of, you know, these guys as terrorists will ring hollow. Yeah. Um, and, and all the talk about, oh, they want to die, they're martyrs, uh, just the complete misrepresentation of people in Gaza and the West Bank of, of what they're going through um, and contextualizing their lives or lack of freedom uh, in terms of Gaza. And I wanted to just say really quickly, you know, in the West Bank, it's no pretty picture either. I mean, these people are living under Israeli military law. Um, a lot of people think of Israel and Palestine as two distinct areas where oh, you just have problems crossing from one into the other. No, it's completely untrue. It's uh, you can't lift up a flag. You can't congregate in groups of five or more. I mean, it's just outrageous the terms and conditions put on people living in the West Bank, um, let alone Gaza. But, you know, Dan, when we were interviewing people in Jerusalem, a lot of them, a lot of Israelis were like, well, we gave them Gaza. They should just go to Gaza. And when you hear about what Gaza is, that just is so horrifying that they can kind of dismissively be like, what, we gave them Gaza. What else do they want? Right, exactly. It's, uh, it's like one of the kind of um, popular myths um, that, you know, pervades Israeli society that Israel gave them Gaza. Um, when it's, I mean, Israel does kind of, you know, it's kind of a, an admission, like a tacit admission in a way, because Israel is responsible for Gaza's con condition today. Um, uh, but, 
I mean, to, it's it's seen as in Israeli society as an act of benevolence. Yeah, we stuffed all those refugees in that bombed out cage, um, and you know what they will, what they don't know or won't admit is that when uh, what they're referring to is when Israel removed unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, um, uh, it placed the entire population under siege and and um, you know began. Um, what to implement the measures we see today that make life so extremely unlivable, and uh, you know that will just simply never enter their consciousness. So it's you know it's pretty um, incredibly arrogant to for Israelis to uh, to you know act as if it's as, as if it's an act of benevolence to you know put this population in the, the bombed out ghetto of Gaza. I think you know we're at a point in 2018 where uh, that the Arab Spring has been totally has totally run its course. It's we're even past the Arab winter of ISIS um, and the rise of the jihadist groups, and you know we're in a kind of new reality. And I think it's time to uh, look at how devastating that whole episode was to Palestinians um, and to pay close attention to what's happening in Syria. Um, Israel is deeply, deeply worried about um, what's happening in southern Syria, ISIS, and the assorted kind of 31 flavors of Tukfiri that Israel really supported and enjoyed having uh, on its border because they never attacked it. They attacked its adversary in Damascus are gone and they've been replaced by Shia militias Hezbollah is in Lebanon and they're stronger than ever. Um, and you know, while Israel's beating up on the Gaza Strip, um, it's facing uh, serious threats that were what it considers serious threats. Um, and you know, we have to be deeply concerned about what kind of um, calamity Israel could cause. Um, and, and also what the U.S. is up to in Syria, because what the U.S. is doing there has a lot to do with Israel, a lot more to do with Israel than ISIS. Uh, General uh, Vodal, I saw today, talked about consolidating American gains in Syria. That means a long-term occupation. And Trump is under harsh attack for saying, you know, why are we still in Syria? We've completed the mission. Let's get the hell out of there. Um, the U.S. wants an occupation in Syria. Israel wants the U.S. in Syria. Russia's there. Um, you know, U.S. and British troops are getting killed there. And uh, I think it's something to watch closely um, as we keep our eye on the Palestinian situation and, tr and we try to keep them on the radar. And I think that's an important thing. It's why it's important to do this podcast is just to continue talking about what's happening in Palestine, not just when there's a war, but um, because... You know, these atrocities are happening all the time, and generally the Western media looks away. Yeah, and don't let people, conf these like neocon little uh, fuckboys or these regime change propagandists, don't let them reroute the argument and try to sort of conflate Palestine with Syria. I mean, I see that happen all the time, and it's just perplexing as hell. Yeah. That that's yeah, even a talking point. point. <laughs> no, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's, it's, I mean we've confirmed completely uh, that the regime change crowd and the kind of axis of weasels that uh, play this role of trolls online are operationally on the same side as Israel when it comes to Syria at this point. Uh, they have the same agenda, which is regime change. Um, and Israel has been 
supporting, almost in many cases directly, Takfiri militias inside Syria, the same ones that um, these regime changers uh, cheered on. So, you know, th there can't be any debate about that at this point. They're operationally on the same side. Um, and then they, make, they continue to try to make this conflation uh, of, you know, the resistance factions in Palestine, which are fighting a Western-backed settler colonial entity, and the jihadist groups in Syria, like Jaysh al-Islam, which are fighting uh, with Western support and Western arms and the support of the GCC, which is who are basically the Western imperial handmaidens in the region, uh, to break apart a post-colonial Arab state. There can't be any equivalency between that and what Palestinians are doing. I mean, they're both enacting completely opposite agendas. Um, so let's not let them make that conflation anymore, and let's look at the situation for what it is. Also, I can tell you just from having been in Gaza recently and in Palestine recently, uh, Palestinians inside Palestine just don't feel that way, and they um, do not support... Uh, there, there are some who support regime change and some who don't, but most of those I met are uh, see very clearly what Israel wants in Syria, and they see what Saudi Arabia wants in Syria, and it's not what they want. I wanted to give a plug to your, your excellent documentary film, Killing Gaza, again, and give you guys the opportunity to tell people who are listening where they can see this film, um, if there are any screenings coming up anytime in the near future, and just tell, tell the audience a little bit about it. Um, how long did it take you guys? I know it took you guys quite a while to put together. Um, yeah, just, just give some information about it. Go ahead, Dan. Well, Max and I were first able to go into the Gaza Strip uh, in about the final two, two and a half weeks of the 51-day war in 2014. Um, and we were just planning to uh, film in order to, to uh, get stories so we could, for, for our written journalism, and we quickly realized that um, what we were capturing was so powerful that it had to make the basis for a documentary. And so um, we continued, uh, I continued to go back after the ceasefire and spent over the next two years, about uh, six and a half months in Gaza, filming the everyday crises of people living under siege, trying to piece their life back together after, um, after the, the massacre um, and living without electricity or water. So whether that's, uh, you know, your streets are flooded because you don't, Israel won't allow um, Palestinians to have fuel to pump out uh, uh, torrential rains, um, or, um, you know, the protests on the border or lack of electricity, and so people, uh, you know, um, uh, have to uh, have fires in their in their bombed-out homes, or babies freezing to death in the cold. Um, and so, you know, we really wanted to show what life is like in Gaza after the foreign press leaves, and you know, uh, uh, Gaza only really gets covered when there's rockets going out, or um, you know, which is extremely rare, or when there's a demonstration at the border that, you know, like the one we saw recently. Um, and so, you know, it's that message that I described earlier of resilience, but also increasing desperation and refusal to submit that we want to deliver to Western audiences through 
our documentary, using it as a, as a vehicle to deliver that. And uh, we really hope we succeeded in that. Um, Max, do you want to talk about, you know, distribution or wherever it's going to be seen or any of that? Yeah, where the hell can I see it? I'm still waiting to watch it. We, we can send you a link. We can send you a link, okay. but uh, we're like trying to find a distributor. Mac, I don't know how you yeah. want to address that. Max. We're thinking about changing the whole uh, film to be about Russian doping in the Syrian white helmet. So we can. Get, <laughs> That's what we really need we, right now. So we can get you know an Oscar in mainstream distribution. <laughs> Trying to get um, some of that Icarus cash. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, pretty much the Hollywood, I mean, the Oscars was just like the Cold War Oscars and like anything about Russia got an award. Um, even, even if it completely sucked, like The Last Man of Aleppo, I actually watched that and it, it sucked. It just was not a good film. So now we see that Susan Rice is on the board of Netflix, uh, just as, uh, you know, Obama, former Obama officials have been put on the board of Vice. Uh, or, or in managerial positions advice. So like we're, we're, we're entering a brave new future of filmmaking where private filmmaking and film distribution entities are becoming an arm of American soft power. And I do feel like it's going to be difficult to find distribution for this film. I'm setting a deadline of May Day uh, before we put it online so people can just see it. Um, maybe I'll change that, you know, in, in discussion with... Dan or other people, but that's kind of how I'm becoming kind of frustrated and impatient. Um, we're, we're not getting a lot of help if you're listening to this and you feel like you know you, you can help us get distribution. Uh, we'd like to enter the film into more festivals. Uh, we're, en we're entering it into the Boston Palestine Film Festival, so we'll be showing it in Boston. Hopefully, we're going to be showing it at the Palestine Center in Washington, D.C. this summer. Um, we've received an invitation to show it. Um, by a group of students in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, we showed it at McGill University and uh, to a packed house and received a really astounding review from the student paper. Um, and the reaction from the crowd was overwhelming. Um, I think this is one of the most unique contributions on the Gaza Strip. And um, I, I think a lot of people have compared it to Holocaust films they've witnessed. And I think that, that that while we're not comparing the two situations, uh, the, the feeling it leaves you with uh, is apt. I mean, that is an apt comparison just in terms of the feeling you walk away with. Uh, it is not a feel-good film, but it's reality. Uh, the reality that 1.8 million people have been plunged into because of our alliance with Israel. Well, I really appreciate what you guys have put together. Um, it's incredibly important, and I've seen the film um, it, in different iterations throughout time. Full disclosure, I, I did the score for the film. Um, and I, I think what you guys have, you know, ended up with is an excellent and chilling portrayal of, of what really goes on there. And I think everybody needs to see it. Hopefully if anybody is listening out there who, uh, is a distributor or who does any film festivals, um, you need to seriously look into killing Gaza. And is there any, uh, social media or website, so people can go to now to find out more information about it. You can check out some exclusive trailers at killinggaza.com. Thanks awesome. so much, you guys, for taking the time to talk about uh, everything that's going on in Gaza and for all of your incredible work. Everyone support Max and Dan. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us.
And thanks for your podcast. I learned uh, a lot about the octopi on the last episode. <laughs> Watch Blue Planet too, dog. Yeah. <laughs> All, All right, right guys. guys. Thanks so much. Peace. Yeah, thanks so much guys, for coming on. Peace. Take care. Peace. Thank you.